I think the people in this country have had enough of experts with uh, organisations from acronyms saying... The people of this country have had enough of experts. From organisations with acronyms saying that they know what is best and getting it consistently wrong. I've always wanted to say this. I've never said this before. With all the talking we all do, all of these experts, oh, we need an expert. The experts are terrible. The global order is changing. Neoliberalism is under unprecedented strain. There's a general sense that the rules by which our societies have been structured for the last several decades have broken down and that our leaders and our institutions have failed us. If neoliberalism was the economic base to the globalization superstructure, what will the consequences of this shift be on the lives of ordinary people? Join Globalization Cafe as we offer uncompromising political and economic analysis on the global issues that affect our everyday lives. Because the political conversation matters. Noam Chomsky has been denied entry into the West Bank by Israel. The world-renowned linguist and political thinker was scheduled to deliver a lecture at Razait University near Ramallah and was scheduled to meet with Palestinian Prime Minister Salam Fayyad. On Sunday afternoon, he was stopped by Israeli border guards at the Allenby Bridge border crossing from Jordan. After three hours of questioning, Chomsky's passport was stamped, denied entry. His daughter, Professor Aviva Chomsky, she teaches at Salem State College, was also denied entry. No reason was initially given for the decision. Ah, oh, this takes me back. 2010, I was doing some of my PhD research in the West Bank. I was actually hanging out with a friend of mine at the Right to Education campaign, which was part of the uh, then part of the Public Relations Officer uh, Office at Beersit University. And we found out that Chomsky was going to come and give a lecture. And you can imagine, young Phil, admittedly quite a nerd, already a big fan of Chomsky. I was so excited. I couldn't believe it. I had a book I was going to get him to sign. I was going to shake his hand. I was just going to... I was going to have a story to tell when I got home. But then, Professor Chomsky was denied entry. It was a bit of a shambles. I remember an Israeli spokesman coming on the news after that saying, this is not happening, this isn't happening, sort of in a sense of denial. And I think the Israelis actually revoked the decision to deny him entry. But by then it was too late. Chomsky went back to Jordan. He did a very nice lecture via Skype. Everybody clapped. I didn't get to meet him. I didn't get an autograph. And I only got this story, which, to be honest, isn't that great. But okay, I admit it. My failure or my disappointment to meet one of the world's greatest intellectuals is perhaps not the biggest story in the world. But perhaps something that should be a bigger story is the issue of academic freedom. Well, this short story about what happened eight years ago on the border of Jordan and the West Bank demonstrates the fact that even the world's most prominent, most famous uh, public intellectual can be denied entry on the way to give a lecture. But if we look around the world, of course, on every continent, there are threats to academic freedom. There are scholars who are denied safety and protection that they need to carry on their work. There are students who are denied education. And of course, as the quotes at the top of the show highlighted, there's an ever growing sort of cloud of anti-intellectualism that seems to be uh, emerging these days in our moment of 
Trumpian, Brexiteerian, Erdoganian populism. So in today's episode and in the the next few, we're going to be discussing this topic of academic freedom and we're going to start with the question at its most serious. Today I'm delighted to say that we've got a fantastic interview with Viviana Fernandez, who is the Deputy Director of the Human Rights Research and Education Centre at the University of Ottawa. I spoke to Viviana on the phone and I began by asking her to introduce herself and explain a little bit about the Scholars at Risk programme. Welcome to the University of Ottawa. For service in English, press 1. Veuillez dire le nom de la personne que vous voulez joindre. Hi Viviana, it's Phil. Hi Phil, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Good. Okay, so um, my name is Viviana Fernandez and I am Assistant Director at the Human Rights Research and Education Centre at the University of Ottawa. Um, in terms of the Scholars at Risk Network, I am uh, one of the institutional representatives for the network in campus and I am also um, part of the steering committee of the Scholars at Risk Canada section which uh, started in 2012 and was formalized in 2016. And uh, we are just starting a, two, a new two-year term uh, as a steering committee uh, that will bring us to the 2020 Scholars at Risk Global Congress. Um, so in terms of responsibilities, uh, I work as uh, assistant director in doing the connection with the network and other members in Canada. I uh, guide the work of a University of Ottawa committee that is focusing on scholars at risk. Uh, we work closely with the provost, who is the um, authority in, under uh, whom we are uh, operating in financial terms uh, for the work we do. And I also liaise with our human rights clinic, which is contributing to the project, uh, Academic Freedom Monitoring Project, from um, the network, from Scholars at Risk. And they are conducting a project to monitor the situation uh, of six countries in the Americas, including uh, Canada, of course, uh, Haiti, Venezuela, Mexico, Honduras, and Colombia. This is a new addition to our program. Uh, we just uh, started the work of the clinic in January of this year, and um, the work includes contributing uh, to the monitoring of uh, scholars and incidents as described by the Academic Monitoring Project of SAR. And uh, so there are six categories uh, that they track, basically, and also some advocacy actions. So in that context is um, the organization of the event that took place yesterday on Venezuela, for instance, is part of that advocacy work. And we have done a little bit of that in the particular case of Venezuela. Um, and now we are framing it within the context of our advocacy actions for scholars at risk. Can you tell um, tell us what what is scholars at risk? Where's it where does it come from, and how long has it been around, and why is it important? So scholars at risk is an international network of institutions uh, 
mostly universities and colleges, uh, some technical uh, colleges as well, and individuals whose mission uh, is to protect scholars and promote academic freedom around the world. Uh, there are more than 500 members uh, in 39 countries currently uh, in the network. And it basically has three legs of uh, in terms of their work. So there is the protection aspect where they work on uh, trying to pair scholars uh, uh, who are facing uh, risks uh, with hosting institutions uh, that could provide some uh, time, uh, sanctuary if you want to uh, expand and sometimes restart their academic uh, work and uh, assisting those scholars in the hosting unit uh, in uh, how to better develop their own uh, programs and processes. They also work on advocacy, so they engage students in the advocacy seminars and legal clinics, and um, they issue some calls for actions on cases of extreme uh, urgency and when the risk is, uh, uh, it's a very dire situation, basically. And uh, they do then the work of uh, academic, the Academic Freedom Monitoring Project, which issues an annual report called Free to Think, and uh, basically tracking all the attacks that uh, happen in uh, a year uh, of period. So they started in 2015 with the report, and now we have, uh, they, they issued the last one in October in 2017. And then they do, they have a learning component of their work. So they uh, attend conferences, uh, organize and participate in workshops, and uh, they uh, have some publications, and they uh, help on uh, research groups uh, in particular to advance the notion of academic freedom and, uh, for instance, they, one of their latest uh, initiatives is the launch of a MOOC on academic freedom, which will start in uh, early June, uh, and that is a joint initiative with uh, European partners and supported by Erasmus+. Plus. Um, so they have that, and they're also working on an academic freedom index that could be used globally. So there's a couple of initiatives that they're doing uh, lately. And that's a MOOC, um, one of those, uh, a massive online was it, uh, course. So... Exactly. Okay, great. That sounds really interesting. I might look into that. Uh, so um, I, I just want the, the next question is, is we always hear about what, you know, academic freedom and everybody sort of knows it's a good thing. But why is it particularly important to advocate for academics rather than, say, journalists or, or other civil society actors or so on? Uh, um, and, and just when you answer that, maybe you could give us an example of, of what kind of threats that academics face. So in, in broader terms, uh, I think it would be safe to consider that uh, universities and academics and, and the environment in which they work is a reflection of society at large, and uh, their contribution to the well-functioning uh, well of society and democratic institutions 
can preserve uh, those institutions. So if we don't have academic freedom and uh, scholars are unable to research the effects of public policy, for instance, then public policy would be conducted based on ideology and not on results, allocations of funding, uh, needs, uh, needs assessments for services. Uh, so in, in contexts where there is a very restrictive or a punitive environment and academics are not able to do research on topics of importance to the well-functioning of uh, society and of government programs, then we won't have the knowledge to uh, make the changes that will guarantee better outcomes for our decisions. So uh, in the context of uh, protecting academic freedom, I think it needs to be seen as integral to uh, democracy un understood at large. And um, the contributions that scholars can make to this is fundamental to protecting the advancement of, uh, of every aspect of our lives, really, because they are working in pretty much every aspect of the functioning of our world. So whether it be um, social sciences, or law, or business, or medicine, uh, engineering. So it, it is uh, a fundamental value, and we need to protect it. Okay, so, so um, if there are, I mean, uh, is there an example you could, you could give us of, um, of uh, the, the, the kind of works that academic, uh, work that academics have done and the kind of risks that they've, that they've uh, f or, or threats that they've faced uh, as part of that? So there are um, examples I can give you of uh, scholars we have hosted at the University of Ottawa. So the first one came uh, in 2015. Um, an Iranian uh, lawyer practicing in the human rights uh, space, so of course advocating for um, the uh, to to avoid uh, the death penalty for some of his clients, uh, child rights, uh, women's rights, uh, and so in the context of the Iranian society uh, and and government policies, that was quite controversial, and uh, it uh, meant that he had to leave the country. Um, and uh, and uh, being unable to return, basically. So uh, we were fortunate enough to host him uh, in the Faculty of Law uh, at the university, jointly with our colleagues at uh, Carleton University. And, um, and uh, that allowed us to learn a little bit more about the type of cases he had been working on. We have uh, currently two scholars we are hosting, and uh, one comes from Pakistan working in uh, international development, and he stands on um, women's programs and women's rights also uh, brought some uh, problems for him to continue his work in the context uh, where, where he was um, uh, operating, and so he also had to uh, flee the country and spent some time in Europe and uh, last year at McGill University, and now he uh, is uh, working at uh, the School of International Development and Global Studies um, in campus. 
And uh, the third scholar we are hosting currently is a linguist, uh, Kurdish origin, from Iran. And uh, due to the difficult situation of uh, Kurdish uh, people in uh, Iran and Iraq, um, he uh, found himself unable to continue working and not having any job security uh, where he was. So he uh, immigrated to or came actually to Canada, not necessarily permanently, um, last fall. And uh, he's working with colleagues at the Official Languages and Bilingualism Institute at the Faculty of Arts, and uh, also um, linking with colleagues at Carleton University, uh, where he is um, currently developing a sort of virtual dictionary of Kurdish language as a way to continue his work in supporting the Kurdish uh, communities. Those are three clear examples of the type of uh, situations we have seen. Yeah, well, that's quite. It's a very broad cross section of of different kind of research uh, as well. It's not just mm-hmm. not just political activism or things like that. You know, you might traditionally think of as as the kind of um, work that would be threatened. Yes. So, I mean, but more broadly, um, we are obviously in uh, a moment of sort of a populist peak if you like uh, worldwide the you know Donald Trump and uh, Brexit and and uh, Erdogan and Duterte and you know you look around the world you see these this rise of what probably you know Gramsci or whatever we call it, the strongmen um, and there seems to be a lot of public mistrust of experts. In fact, I think during the Brexit debate, one of the government ministers then said people are tired of hearing from experts. Um, do, I mean, this obviously is is quite scary. What, what, but what what role should experts play in our broader political debate? Do you think? I think they can provide. Uh, the sounding board for initiatives that could come from the political realm and uh, a, a, a better justification for uh, those programs and initiatives that uh, appear very popular or uh, are not popular sometimes in the ballot box. And um, I think it's fundamental uh, for those evaluations to be done in a responsible way and uh, to to be able to trust them to have the autonomy in the academic freedom uh, necessary to conduct this uh, th- these uh, measurements and the data collection and uh, to, to work on the different aspects that could help inform uh, decision making. So uh, I think uh, we need those uh, independent voices as a way to uh, decide where we want to go and uh, then being able to correct course if that is not the right uh, direction we should have been going. Okay, so, so you're sort of describing it as a, as a like a, an essential check on on democracy, I guess that that is it, it, sort of and and public policy development. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's great. Um, so, as you the as you you know, I'm hoping to interview two of the the uh, uh, participants of or, uh, of scholars at risk. Um, I don't know if participants is the right word. Two scholars at risk in the program uh, for later episodes. 
Um, but I mean, you mentioned the three examples, Ottawa. You, but are, are there, if you look around again around the world today, are there conditions, examples, or, or maybe countries, you know, of particular concern to you? I mean, condi- where conditions are getting worse, maybe maybe something we we don't we might not think about straight away that, that you 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 might consider as something we should focus on. Uh, two examples, perhaps, that uh, I picked up uh, during the uh, last month's Global uh, Congress of Scholars at Risk in uh, Berlin. So one uh, from India, and uh, basically because of the information we get in Canada being, uh, in general, uh, positive, towards the current government and towards uh, the economic uh, progress that the country is doing. Uh, But the voices we heard from India were quite critical uh, in terms of the apparent relinquishing of responsibilities uh, from the government in terms of education and how that has left large swaths of the population uh, falling behind and uh, really creating uh, long-term effects potentially to to maintaining this development that is being touted as so positive and so um, working so well in comparison to other countries. So that was uh, surprising. Um, and the other country that uh, definitely is uh, undergoing, uh, is going through difficult times is uh, for sure Venezuela. And uh, uh, from uh, the inability to continue with programs because uh, a lot of the professors have uh, left, uh, because they don't get paid, because students cannot even get to campuses because they don't have money to go or transportation, reliable transportation, or they can't even find food to withstand a full day of functioning, or they need to spend time queuing up to get the food instead of, you know, working or or trying to study uh, to... Uh, a long now uh, situation where there hasn't been uh, investment in educational infrastructure, uh, no access to journals, unreliable electrical supplies, so no internet at times, um, including also uh, the uh, uh, the, the taking the reins that belong to universities for uh, political purposes and given to uh, groups, armed groups that are uh, pro-government in destruction of uh, universities' property. Uh, Of course, if there was some study conducted in those terrains, or animals used for uh, veterinarian research or, you know, a- any type of measurement. Animals have been killed and eaten, um, and those terrains are now out of the hands of uh, the university administration. So the problems are really broad-ranging, and uh, the addition in the system of... Uh, 
universities that are pro-regime, uh, which are lacking minimum standards of uh, quality uh, control for uh, educational purposes, uh, could be also creating long-lasting effects in terms of future generations. So um, the situation is really, really desperate, and uh, there seems to be a lack of uh, connection with people's perception of what is going on versus countries like Turkey, for instance, where the, the crisis seems to be resonating a lot more. And uh, the most people you would talk to in an academic environment will immediately uh, understand the consequences of the Turkish uh, crisis. But the Venezuelan crisis seems to be not quite well understood. Okay, well, that's that's really fascinating. I, th- I think those both two examples, which I don't know enough about, and I and I actually I'm 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 sort of hoping that uh, to do maybe some some uh, uh, episodes later when we we'll talk to experts about I- India and about uh, the conditions there, and then the, the crisis, this devastating crisis going on in Venezuela. Maybe I can do some specific episodes on them later. I just had a, an, an extra question just before the last one. I just uh, I meant to add in. I'm, uh, I hope it's okay with you. But um, I know that your 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 broader interests are on uh, on uh, uh, gender and security, uh, and you you work with uh, uh, on on gender issues uh, uh, in some of your other work. So I just wanted: mm-hmm. is there a is there a, a gender uh, or a gender analysis that we can apply to scholars at risk as well to this attack on academic freedom? Is it is it you know is that something that that needs to be done that we need to talk more about as well? I think there is in the sense that uh, uh, the countries that are, if you want, generating more um, scholars at risk uh, tend to be. Uh, from societies in societies where where they're quite uh, patriarchal, so um, a lot of the cases that were traditionally seen were from male scholars, and so uh, we asked at the last congress to have a breakdown uh, by gender of the scholars, the cases they processed uh, last year, which are uh, around 700. And the um, situation seems to be uh, balancing itself out, uh, perhaps because the crisis in Turkey and uh, most of the scholars we uh, scholars at risk processed last year came from Turkey, about 60%. Uh, that situation has affected men and women scholars uh, more, more broadly. Um, but up to then, uh, it was mostly a male uh, problem or a male population, if you want, that was willing to leave, willing to um, put themselves out there and 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 go to uh, other countries to to seek refuge. Now that's that's really fascinating. I I wonder if this will sort of continue to develop as well. I suppose there's beyond the sort of male female divide as well. There'd be like issues of sexuality and and and, and all those kind of things that that, that come into this uh, as well. I mean, even in even in uh, you know uh, solidly democratic countries, there's 
still of significant discrimination, of course, even in academia against you know non-white males. Um, um, uh, just okay. So just let me just uh, ask you the final question then, which is. Um, if we look broadly at, at uh, scholars at risk in context, I mean, the kind of problems that the program seeks to address and the challenge, the challenges the, similar to those that you mentioned and beyond that scholars face. Do you have any thoughts about how this situation, this this issue will develop over the next 10 years or so, get better or worse? What, what do you think? Unfortunately, I think the situation is not looking very bright in a lot of countries, and it isn't uh, region-specific, uh, but certainly the uh, countries that are facing more conflicts right now, armed conflicts even, uh, are more at risk. Uh, the situation in Venezuela not being a country that is going in an overt war, but uh, a country in which violence is quite uh, prevalent in the, in an everyday uh, life, I think will continue to uh, to generate this sort of dynamic, and uh, scholars may find themselves because of the their work uh, in dangerous situations and um, facing difficult choices whether to stay and uh, to continue in however way they may be able to or to uh, leave with the potential risk of not being able to continue their uh, their academic work or pursue the research they were uh, they, they had ongoing up to that point or simply to have to uh, consider uh, a new way of life and, and a new way of engaging with uh, their field uh, through entrepreneurship or uh, other avenues that they may be, may be able to find. So I, I am not sure that I am a pessimist, but uh, I, I see that uh, the mood so far is not... Uh, is not very bright, and the need has certainly grown uh, from year to year. Uh, hopefully, there will be some situations that will be resolved, and people will be able to either uh, stay or return to their home countries. And uh, if that happens, it would be uh, a good thing to have had the opportunity to not stop their uh, careers and their research uh, abroad and perhaps bring new skills and bring new uh, networks and connections that would be uh, relevant as they face uh, reconstruction or uh, redevelopment of a university environment that will uh, be conducive to the continuation of the uh, higher education system in that country. Okay, that, that's that's fascinating. I've, I've, I... I often find myself on the pessimistic side of things <laughs> when you put it on that that that, that way. It definitely makes sense. Um, is there is there anything else you think I, I should have asked you? Maybe that you 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 think is important that I've missed. I uh, I just perhaps would like to mention uh, a case that was also quite uh, interesting um, from the U.S. actually because uh, we had uh, a discussion on. Uh, 
from uh, somebody uh, who works uh, in education. And uh, so doing a study on uh, programs funded by uh, the government on schools in New York City, for instance, math education and pedagogy. And uh, she found herself uh, the object of attacks by right-wing groups, uh, some funded by the Koch brothers in particular. And uh, currently, she's still facing some uh, surveillance from uh, Breibart uh, and uh, some articles appeared with her face and her contact information in Fox News, Daily Mail, and other outlets. And um, she's still receiving hate mail for for saying, uh, for finding uh, that some of the programs are, uh, would have had an effect in terms of uh, more detrimental effects on black students versus white students. And um, so the cautionary tale in that story was how easy it could be for uh, a scholar to find him or herself in the eye of a media storm that the university may or may not be in a position to really take on or protect or address properly. And uh, the effects can be quite uh, long-lasting. So this is something that um, professional associations in the U.S. are looking at and are monitoring and are trying to assist scholars. And I believe this is something that University of Canada and other groups uh, would also uh, be interested in, in uh, monitoring, and I believe they are. Uh, but just the notion that you can find yourself so quickly in such a public display of hate and uh, suffer harassment and uh, being discredited professionally was quite scary. And I think it could have a chilling effect uh, depending on where you are. So uh, having... An, institution, an appropriate institutional response and channels to address such situations could contribute significantly to give a better support for scholars who could find themselves in that kind of situation. Well, that, that is really quite chilling, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that, yes. thank, well thank, yeah. thank, thank you for sharing with that. And, and thank you so much for, for talking uh, to me today for the, for the podcast. Um, I'm really looking forward to talking to the to to the two scholars that are in Ottawa, if if uh, if that works out. But uh, yeah, th- thanks so much, uh, Viviana. Re- really appreciate it. You're welcome. Good to talk to you. And that was my conversation with Viviana Fernandez, who is the assistant director of the Human Rights Research and Education Centre at the University of Ottawa, and also represents uh, the University of Ottawa on the steering committee of Scholars at Risk. If you're interested in supporting scholars at risk or just learning more about it, I'm going to drop a a link in the description uh, for this podcast. My name's Philip Leachnow. I've been your host of Globalization Cafe. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you again in the next episode.